Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to see which one does it better. On this week's episodes, In the Red Corner... How do you feel about celebrities? Because Kevin Costner's ex-Secret Service agent does not like them. He prefers the people he protects to want to be protected. And Whitney Houston's megastar does not. Largely because it means having grim-faced Kevin moping about, sucking the fun from all her parties. Understandable, really. From 1992, it's The Bodyguard. I was two years with Carter, four with Reagan. Reagan got shot. Not on my ship. All my colors, boy. All right. You don't look like a bodyguard. This is my disguise. <laughs> well, his timing's good. Henry, I've spent a lot of time guarding people all over the world, and I found one thing to be true. No matter how incompetent the assassins, no matter how much they miss their target by, there's one person who always gets hit. Someone was in my house. <laughs> Wait a minute, someone was in my house. While in the blue corner, he's not getting too old for this shit, as Clint Eastwood proves that age doesn't matter when it comes to hunting down an assassin intent on taking the president's life. Nor does age matter when it comes to seeking a romantic love interest, as Rene Russo falls for his... I want to say charms, but that feels like a stretch. From 1993, we're in the line of fire. Three shots have been fired at President John Kennedy's motorcade. It was his job to safeguard the destiny of a nation. But at the critical moment, he was a split second too late. Now, after a lifetime of second thoughts and second guesses, Secret Service agent Frank Horrigan is about to get a second chance. So what connects these two films and which one does it better? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken. Hello, Clash Putters. I've been watching you all night from across the room. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. Yeah, he's back. He wasn't here last week. If you missed the shows because you knew he wasn't here, then you missed out Chris not being here. But nevertheless, he's back. The Tilly Tots everywhere will be thrilled. 
I did have someone message me saying I'm now a Tilly Tot. Yeah, you have started something. <laughs> You've started something. <laughs> I've started something. Uh, they also said they thought the podcast lacked focus without me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, harsh but fair. <laughs> I, I, you know, I want to disagree. <laughs> yeah, it was a different kind of experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's a nicer way of putting it. It was a unique. Yeah. It existed and now it's gone now it's and passed. And Chris is back. My God, you look good enough to eat. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> is it? Is that like a ladybird eating Vicky's hair? Did you listen to the show? Yeah, of course uh. I did. <laughs> of course I did. Just to hear you speculating about whether or not I'd be listening to the show. <laughs> Vicky said you wouldn't. I thought you didn't. She said you didn't listen to. Of course, shows. She, that's why she called me a bag of skin on it. <laughs> <laughs> It's a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I listen back to it. It doesn't come across like a compliment. It really doesn't. I took such a battering on that episode. I don't think I'm going to listen to Three Musketeers when that drops. <laughs> okay. It is wonderful to have you back. So, The Bodyguard versus In the Line of Fire. These were Victoria's choices. Tell us why. Because I wanted to do The Bodyguard. Mm. And then uh, Chris suggested In the Line of Fire, mm. which is a good suggestion. It's really that basic. Mm. Bag of skin has some use, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I said. That's what I meant. He holds it all in. That's so, <laughs> so gr- weirdly graphic. I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know. Anyway, uh, the clue you gave last week, which I did love at the time, Victoria, was? I will always take a bullet for you, apart from that one time I didn't. Chris followed that up on Twitter with? Uh, presidential guilt. Right, so we are on Twitter at ClashPod, also on Instagram at ClashPod, and the guesses tried to hide behind the security, but we found them. Lots of right answers this week, so congratulations, Richard Cartwright, Alex Sugden, I am Simon McAllister, new listener. Hello, Simon. Matt T, Mark Shea, Russell, Paul Logue, Andrew Logan, Ross Callum and Tibbs. But the winner this week at 6.16am on the day the episode containing the first clues was released, you quite literally... Have to get up early to beat this guy. Congratulations, <laughs> Robert Farley. Your prize is some free, close personal protection from the three of us. We're good. You won't even know we're there, but we'll be watching you. Sorry, not protection, stalking. We'll be stalking you. Enjoy. So just before the connection section, I don't think we've been in the same room when we talked about the live show, Chris. No, we haven't. We haven't. We're doing a live show. We're doing a live show. We've got our next live show. It's happening on Thursday, November the 11th at the Loading Bar in Stoke Newington, London. A lovely bar, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, lovely, lovely. Jimmy runs the place. We went down there to have a chat with him. We brainstormed films to do. And we ended up doing bar-themed films because we're doing this podcast in a bar. Which also means what, Victoria? Cocktails. Themed cocktails. Themed cocktails. Do we know what they're going to be yet? The themed cocktails? Yeah. Do you care? I don't care, personally. I don't know. I'm not mad about a vodka-based cocktail. Oh, really? I prefer a rum-based cocktail. How about a gin-based cocktail? Yeah. Yeah. Let's stop talking about the booze. All right. Uh, (laughs) The films we're doing are Cocktail and Coyote Ugly. Yes. And it looks like we will be dressing up again. Yeah, it is optional. You are welcome to dress up. I I will be dressing up because it's in my contract. Chris, are you going to dress up? Yeah. I'm going to go with the other film, though. Okay. I, don't, I yeah. don't think you should. I think we should be three coyotes. <laughs> it's unfair then. It's unfair. Why, because you will look too fit. <laughs> <laughs> he has got a gorgeous tan. <laughs> How high does it go up the legs of the tan? Because obviously you're going to be in short shorts if we're doing coyote. Uh, oh, yeah, not that far. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, all right, so if you want to get tickets for our live show, we would love you to come down, like I said, November the 11th. Uh, the tickets are available at eventbrite.co.uk. That's event, B-R-I-T-E.co.uk. Just search Clash of the Titles. All the details are on there. We do hope you can make it. So, connections, what do you got? Presidential guilt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, men called Frank, who live alone who, after checking the kitchens are safe, are then blinded by lighting at public events. <laughs> <laughs> Women who love a grumpy shit. Yeah. Uh, fundraising dinners. Mm. Heroes who beat up innocent blokes in hotels. In the kitchen? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the bellboy gets beaten up oh, it, yeah. it, by a lift, doesn't he, yeah. in um in Line of Fire. But yeah, the cook in, in, the, in the kitchen just having a fag. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> Is he even a cook? I think he's he's not. Is he? The, I think he's the husband of someone who of works the there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't spoil it. That spoiled my intro. All right. I wish I wouldn't said. Yeah, you, you said it. Uh, that's about all I've got actually. Yeah. All right, great stuff. Uh, well, bodyguards ready to die for the person they're protecting, obviously. So on Thursday, I am panting and wheezing as I try and jog along the road. So any regular day for me, which means today Chris is reminding us why he will always love you. Chris takes on a journey. How do you protect someone who doesn't want to be protected? That's the question at the heart of The Bodyguard, a movie that launched Whitney Houston's movie career and cemented Kevin Costner's position as the number one box office star on the planet, which he'd literally piss away just three years later <laughs> thanks to Waterworld. But back to this film and someone is trying to blow up pop star Rachel Maron by planting bombs in places she definitely won't be. But who is the assassin? The jealous sister? The loner with pictures of her in his locker? The bloke whose only crime seems to be smoking a cigarette in a kitchen? It's the sister, obviously. But that doesn't actually matter, as the film is really just two hours of getting us to a place where Whitney can sing I Will Always Love You, Mean It, and turn a relentlessly stupid thriller into the second biggest movie of 1992. For your consideration, The Bodyguard. <laughs> Sorry, I'm excited. <laughs> so, I must have spent most of December 1992 in the cinema as the three biggest films of that year all came out that month The Bodyguard, Home Alone 2, and Aladdin. And I watched them all at the movies. Mm. Um, yeah, weird. How old would I have been? 13, 14. Went with the lads. You know, that's, sure. what, that's what you did in the early 90s. You to, went with the lads to, to watch, watch The Bodyguard. Yeah. yeah. Why? Because we didn't know any girls. <laughs> and the girls but, were watching The Bodyguard, to be fair. It was a good place to meet girls. And the point is, the whole world went to see this film, Alex. Like, even if you were a 14-year-old boy who was more into James Bond or whatever, it was like, you just went and saw this movie. It was such a cultural m moment. Okay, so first watch for me, I have never seen The Bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to do that, because obviously there's loads of stuff I haven't seen, so I'm like, what? But it is quite incredible. Yeah, it fe I felt like I'd seen it because yeah, the enough. music mm. video for I Was Always Love You uh, and the other ones. Yeah, and all of them. They all had so many clips from this film mm. in it. So I was really familiar with the bit on the jetty. I was familiar with the bit where he carries her out in the spaceman costume. <laughs> and so I sort of felt like I'd seen it. But, sorry to disagree, as a 14-year-old boy, this, to me, looked less like a thriller and more like a soppy love story. And I'm pleased I've now watched it and proved my 14-year-old self right. Yeah, Because it is not... A thriller. It is a soppy romance. The thriller bit is like it takes a big backseat. Okay, interesting. Vicky. 
So do you remember? Oh no, you don't remember. She went here. No, no, maybe you're here. Uh, boring. So I had a friend called Leslie at school. Self-editing. <laughs> I taught her that last week. <laughs> Learning and growing. So my friend Leslie, her mum. Leslie. Yeah, you did she did a lot with Leslie because she gets a mention because Leslie's mum showed me Dirty Dancing, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and The Bodyguard. Mm. And it was obviously a huge, massive, big deal at school. And actually, I remembered in the week at Leslie's house. That's where she had. She had better telly than we did. That's where I first saw the video for Common People by Pulp, which changed my entire life mm. in an afternoon. So I remember that very well. Um, but how? yeah, because that's that was the thing. <laughs> what do you mean how? <laughs> well, just what what aspect? Did, of- did you go to the supermarket? <laughs> 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 That's where groceries are kept. <laughs> Did you get in a trolley like Sadie Frost and ride around? <laughs> what? I just don't understand how it. Because I was like 12 years old and I wasn't sure what I needed or wanted or where I was going, but I knew I didn't quite like this stuff and I didn't like this stuff. And then I saw that music video and I was like, that is the thing I've been looking for. It was so- on aisle four. <laughs> oh, you're funny. <laughs> Don't come for me with that. Alex, she isn't laughing. (laughs) I am. I'm sorry. It's all right. Yeah, anyway, that was a very important music video, but we're not here to talk about Pulp's Common People. No, we're not. It was the pity. Anyway, we're here to talk about The Bodyguard. So, yeah, I I saw it once then. I've seen it a few times over the years. It's, you know, one of the duvet day films. Haven't seen it for a while, though, and I did have a little flare of panic (laughs) in the week because it's not a great film, but obviously it's got magic in it, but... When I started watching it in the week, I was like, oh, hang on, is this actually just bad? <laughs> but it's not, obviously. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And See, the re- Chris is back now, so we're holding know, back know, on yeah. that. That's, that's as much as I'll say. <laughs> so Jeopardy was completely absent from last week's shows. We basically declared the winner in the first 10 minutes of Monday's episode. So just so you know. And you said that I loved Young Guns. That isn't true. I thought you did. I no, thought that's I haven't seen it in a long time. I was quite scared to revisit it. I liked it when I was a kid. Right. right. I was under no illusions that I might love it now. But what I will say, having listened to the episode, you made it sound really good. <laughs> having said you didn't like it in the beginning. That's great. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Without saying well done. That's it made crazy. me want to revisit it. <laughs> well, so, that's good. Okay, a bit of background on this one. So in the mid-1970s, Lawrence Kasdan was a copywriter and struggling screenwriter who wrote a script called The Bodyguard. Inspiration came from the concept of the samurai and the idea of someone who isn't afraid of death and also someone who would be willing to die for someone else for a salary. Uh, it helped him get an agent and move to LA, though while that agent tried to sell that script tenaciously is how Kazdan put it, for two years, it was rejected 67 times. Uh, The idea when he wrote it was for Steve McQueen and Diana Ross to star in it back in 1975, uh, with John Borman nearly directing. (laughs) Didn't happen because, and I think we've said this a few times with Steve McQueen films, there was an issue with the billing. And so he pulled out because he wanted his name above Diana Ross's, apparently. Right. It just happened on every Steve McQueen film, I think, <laughs> uh, to the point that I think Towering Inferno, I've said it before, I think, him and him and Paul Newman, they had to make their names look like propellers going diagonally so that neither was above the other one. <laughs> and uh, also unable to read them. So. <laughs> <laughs> Paul McQueen Steve and Steve Newman. <laughs> um, then Lawrence Kasdan did Indiana Jones, Star Wars and Body Heat. So he got some clout and he made the big chill where he met Kevin Costner. Do you know the Kevin Costner big chill story? No. No. So, you know, the big chill is about a bunch of people meeting because one of their friends has died. Yeah. He's the dead guy. And there was a bunch of scenes they shot when he was alive, the Costner character, uh, and they all got cut. So sort of Costner's big move, huge movie debut. He's just a body on a slab. (laughs) Uh, But Lauren Kasdan met him there. 
signed him up for Silverado, which is a great Western. I know you're not a Western fan, Alex, as you said last week. Neither is she, by the but way. But it's a good, funny comedy Western, okay. uh, which might, we might do sometime. And Costner's brilliant in it. Uh, so Castan showed him the script and Costner loved it, said we should do this together. But he didn't have the clout. Um, then No Way Out happened and The Untouchables and Field of Dreams and Bull Durham and Robin Hood and Dance with Wolves. And suddenly Costner was on top and he could do anything he wanted. And he wanted to do the bodyguard. Why do you think he wanted to do it? Do you think it's because he saw this as a massive box office success? No, I think it's because he gets to play it being a, a, a sort of almost perfect hero. Like it's romantic, but he's the hard guy. Like that fight he has with Tony, nothing phases him. Like it's a complete... Like even a parody of like yeah, masculinity. I think, it, I think it plays to his ego. It's exactly what I was going to yeah. say. It's mass. It's it's the ideal masculine man. He's playing this strong, silent type, which I want to talk about later. Mm. Um, how appealing that is in this film. But um, yeah, and and it's because, and I think he went on record as saying he wanted to be Steve McQueen. So he played him as Steve McQueen would have played him in his mind, and he even cut his hair like Steve McQueen yeah. had his hair. Again, which we'll get to. So, um, Costner wanted Kasten to direct, but Kasten didn't want to because he'd done so many rewrites on this film. He thought it had got away from the core story. And he said there were so many problems with the script that he didn't know how to fix. He just didn't want any part of helming it. Wow. <laughs> which is quite funny. Um, but he and Kevin Costner uh, liked the Steve Martin movie LA Story and that director, uh, Britt McJackson, got the gig. I like LA Story. It's a good movie. Yeah, I don't. Oh, okay. no. <laughs> I only watched it once and I was very hungover, but it was quite warm. Mm. Quite warm, warm film. Have you watched Only Murders in the Building? No. That's good. I've heard it's good. This yeah. is the Martin Short Yeah, it goes Martin up and down one. a bit, but once it gets going, it's great. Okay. Um, so it'd been through 11 rewrites by the time Mick Jackson boarded it. It got darker, it got more violent. And so Costner said, we've got to go back to the earlier versions and lighten it up. But they needed their pop star first. Um, Kasdan wrote his superstar diva Rachel Marin as talented, temperamental and difficult and the people in the discussion in the early 90s were Janet Jackson Debbie Harry Madonna and I've read Dolly Parton I think people just got confused about Dolly Parton's involvement in this film <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean she's a good actress I don't know would any of those have worked? Madonna uh, do you think? Well, it would have made sense, but I don't think Madonna would have been as good yes. as, as Whitney. Do you remember because the video? There was yeah. a video. God, what was it? It was like a Madonna documentary it that was, came out. It around... was in bed with Madonna. Yes. yes. And it was a very famous clip from it. And it's the Warren Beatty clip in the kitchen where he's sort of trying to control her and she's like like being having a tantrum with Warren Beatty because I think they were seeing each other at the time. Okay. Is that the clip you're talking about? No. Kevin Costner comes backstage or, or to her hotel, her room after a concert. And she asked her, what do you think of the gig? And he said, oh, I thought it was neat. And when he's turned away, she looks at the camera and sticks her finger in her mouth like she's going to vomit right. because she just thought that was not a cool thing to say about her gig, okay. that it was neat. And so that's the reason Madonna was never going to be in this film because <laughs> that was a couple of years before and it was really humiliating for Kevin Costner, her keeping that in the movie. Uh, but he always wanted Whitney Houston, he said, and uh, he speaks very movingly at Whitney Houston's eulogy after she passed away, he gives a eulogy um, there and says that any leading man could have played my part, but at that time, only Whitney could have played Rachel, which I think might have been true. Um, he postponed the film for a whole year to get her. Uh, she had to screen test. He didn't want her to screen test, but the studio insisted, but she apparently nailed that. Uh, Mick Jackson, um, oh, Whitney wanted to take acting lessons, they said in the, in the, in the documentary from about 10 years ago, but Jackson stopped her. He wanted this natural 
Whitney to sort of come through the screen. I will say it is probably a very different experience for me watching this for the first time because of the real life tragedy of Whitney Houston and what happened with her and her mm. passing because you can never fully separate that from watching this movie because mm. obviously she is playing a version of herself mm-hmm. and there are scenes in it which, you know, she seems kind of a little bit unhinged where she's swigging from the whiskey bottle and stuff and you're like, you know, I think it reminds you of the stories you heard around that time and so I think that might be why I couldn't quite enjoy it as the escapism it was intended to be as mm. much as I would have done in 92. Yeah. It is a strange experience watching it now. Um, in terms of her acting, um, test audiences thought she couldn't act and criticised the lack of chemistry between her and Costner. Agreed. And by even, this, Even I agree. Yeah. <laughs> but by this time, Costner had the power to re-edit films in his contract, any film that he made. And so he took the film off Mick Jackson. I don't think Jackson, were, it didn't call, call, cause a big fallout. What he mainly did was remove some of Whitney Houston's longer speeches and let her face do the talking, he said. He thought less is more for her. And it worked to the tune of $400 million. So there's nothing to say it wasn't correct. Um, well, I mean, like uh, I don't know. I think you put Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston in a movie and you've got that soundtrack. I don't think you need the chemistry because I don't know that the chemistry or lack thereof really contributed to the box office. Okay. I really don't. There are scenes where you're like, I just don't know why she's in the room with him. Mm. Like, and it's not her so much as like the character he's playing. There are scenes where it's, they go on a fucking date and he's agreed to this. She begs him to go on a date and it's like blood from a fucking stone. (laughs) She's like, say anything, just say a (laughs) sentence. And he's like, and you're like, just try mate. (laughs) You, you, You jumping ahead. Sorry. Um, here, I'll, I'll give you his reasoning for why he's acting like that okay. when we get there. But let's let's get into the movie. Okay. Um, I'm starting with a section I'm calling Kevin's Cut <laughs> uh, because the film starts at the end of the last adventure like a Bond movie. <laughs> I think they should have started a few seconds before so we could see what he's what done. Actually happened, yeah. <laughs> it's an opportunity to really start with a bang. <laughs> yeah. And it's just a bit understated. But as I said, uh, Costner cut his hair short for the part. And I remember this was a time if you were sort of reading about Hollywood, that like haircuts were such a big deal on men because Harrison Ford had just got destroyed for the the bowl cut thing he had on Presumed Innocent. And then I remember Keanu Reeves' haircut in Speed was almost as big as the movie. Mm. You had to get the buzz cut. And here, he got so much grief for this haircut. And I look at it now and it's completely normal, the haircut (laughs) on him. What did you think of his hair? I didn't like it. You didn't like it? No. It looked, but it also, it is one of the it's appropriate for an ex-Secret Service guy. You mm. would have short hair like that. Mm. Not sort of... What like, was wrong? What is wrong with it? I don't, I don't understand. I just, it doesn't suit him, is the only thing. So it just doesn't make him look very attractive. That's, Alex, it's that basic. I have no opinion on the hair whatsoever. Okay. But again, I was expecting the hair. So the hair didn't surprise me. Okay. Right. The New York Times. So this, this is what the, the review said at the time. New York Times. The close cropped haircut he must have had in grave school looks terrible. The Philadelphia News. I, Claudius hairdo does not help matters. Uh, USA Today. Oh, um, now, so, that, now yeah. it, there's a Roman vibe. I hadn't picked up on that. But now you've said that. Yeah. USA Today says it's like the haircut that goes beyond the standard Secret Service cranial issue. Already it's a listing comment as if a bad trim were the chief problem with this too dull to be campy catastrophe. Uh, and Entertainment Weekly Costner's performance might seem utterly dull were it not for his medieval monk haircut which just about martyrs his handsomeness you can bet this won't be starting any fashion trends uh, but as Costner put it 10 years ago uh, mo- a lot of people have that style now so it literally did so he had the last laugh right now I'm going to split the film into sections tenuously named after Whitney Houston's song starting with How Will I Know 
Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> this is good. This is new. Someone's had a week off. A week yeah, off. Exactly. That's all I that's all I did while I was on holiday. <laughs> uh so uh, let's get to the fact that a bomb explodes in Rachel Marin's dressing room. Uh so she needs more security. And they track down uh Frank, who is throwing knives in his garden. Well, uh, so can someone just this is my first big question, so I'm glad you've stopped at this point. I don't understand this. Is it what the joke is? No. So the guy's like, I want to employ you. And he's like, no, 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 no. Now, if he was missing on purpose and throwing the knife behind him and missing the post because he didn't really want the job. And so he was going, look how shit I am now. I'm not as good as you've heard. Mm. That would work. Yeah. Or if like he was drunk, uh, but he wasn't because he loves an OJ. Mm-hmm. So if he was drunk, it's like, oh, I'll be fine when I sober. None of those. He just sort of, Misses on purpose and then nearly hits the guy on purpose and then goes, yeah, actually, I'm really good. But he didn't want the job in the first place. I don't understand this. No, I don't. Fine. Me neither. I feel like there's lots of bits and pieces in this film that are from different drafts and no one thought to put them all together or make sense of it or actually read it through because they set so many things up that don't pay off. I think the big one here is because um, he's, you know, he's tr- he's trying to recruit it. What's he called when he tries to recruit him? Bill? Bill, yeah. Bill. Yeah. So he's like, they they say you're the best. And Kevin Costner's like, there's no such thing. And that's just left hanging. And it's like, but you should be the best because then later on, you're not sleeping with her, but you won't leave her. So you have to be like, I won't let anyone else protect her because I'm the best. But he doesn't ever say he's the best. And then there's an opportunity for like a really fun line, which is like, well, the best ones always get killed. So I'm not the best because it's like you whittle down the best because the best ones die because they take the bullet and all of that. But he's just not the best, but he is the best, but it isn't very clear. (laughs) The only way this knife scene actually does work is if he is just having a bit of fun. Yeah. He's just like, as in Kevin Costner is gone. Because if you think about it, it would be a Steven Seagal movie if he just went, let me show you what I can do with these knives. That's what I thought. And just all three in at once. I'll be honest, that's that's too easy. That's what I thought. I thought he was just having a bit of fun. He is. and And it makes his character seem like he's will be having some more fun in the movie, <laughs> which is a lie. That happen. Yeah. That's true. But he does take the gig and he heads to Rachel's mansion and meets her. And the moment he meets her, we cut to her sister slash secretary and she immediately looks nervous. This is a fun film to watch with hindsight or a second time when you know who is is plotting away in the background because it's... they do they are she is hiding in plain sight and they are telling you quite a lot. Yeah. Let quite. me just tell you, I, I've never seen this film before and I went, the woman knitting is the killer. <laughs> like the second she appeared, I was like, it's her knitting in the corner. Nice. I knew it. It's Interesting. So freaking obvious. And that isn't from any like music video or anything. I just knew it was her I don't like the buzzer on the front gate I think the conceit that he uses fake names mm. to get in is great yeah. and the fact that you can't really hear on the buzzer and it's like the security here is appalling so mm-hmm. she's in trouble the fact that the buzzer looks absolutely derelict immediately paints Whitney Houston as a kind of like Sunset Boulevard style character oh, yeah. a, a Mrs Haversham <laughs> like locked away in the decrepit mansion <laughs> yeah. which she isn't at all yeah I think it does make you think she's an idiot for quite a long time there's I think there's a, there's a sort of 25 minutes of this film where you're just like she's an idiot she's an idiot then she sings and you don't care <laughs> it's true <laughs> Speaking of idiots, we also meet Cy Spectre, uh, Rachel's publicist. <laughs> oh my God, I'd forgotten about Gary Kemp so much. Sucking on a lollipop. Sucking on, why? Well, you know why? To make him a prick. But why does it work so well? And also, he doesn't say, it's so weird. You know when Americans do British, but they can't quite nail it, but you think, he doesn't, he sounds like someone pretending to be American, pretending to be British. It's such a weird... <laughs> what are you saying? He that he can't do a British accent? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And also, please don't say British accent. I don't like that. Okay. Because there's no such thing as a British accent, is there? What? 
Americans say it's a British accent, but right. we know English, Irish, Scottish is all very oh, different. I see. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, okay. I, I like Gary Kemp in this film, though. I come to like him. So do I. He, I like later in the film when when uh, Frank wants the brunch changed from a Sunday to a Tuesday and he goes, Tuesday morning brunch? Where'd you get this guy, Bill? It's <laughs> <laughs> my favourite line in the film. Yeah, I didn't understand that, but I thought it was funny. Because you would I... never have brunch, because if you're a hipster LA person, you wouldn't have brunch not on a Saturday you or a Sunday. You unstructured week, right. but yeah, a normal but... person wouldn't. Okay, okay. It's a weekend activity. Is it? If yes, all. brunch is a weekend thing. Fine. Fine. Leisurely Fine. brunch with the girls. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I love having leisurely brunches with the girls. Yeah. Just come to a bottomless brunch with me. That'll be fun. <laughs> For about 20 minutes. <laughs> so here we get the first refusal of the call because he says no, but then he meets Rachel's eight-year-old son, Fletcher, and he accepts the call. Uh, how will he know? This is when he knows. <laughs> Lovely. Next section, all the man that I need. Um. Well, someone's had a broken and had a wank on her bed. So this is yeah, great. That's dark. Yeah. I love this. I really wish it leaned more into this because, first of all, I'm not actually clear who had a wank on the bed because no. is it the blonde-haired Uber fan who's writing the creepy letters yeah. or is it the actual guy who is the hired assassin? Good yes, point. have some questions about him coming up. Mm. Uh yeah, he behaves in a way you wouldn't expect our assassin to behave. Yeah. Quite cavalier, actually, in parts. And also misses an opportunity to kill her. Yes, yes. You, you, you've got to wonder what his intentions are. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's not clear who, who does that. But it makes the film feel grown up. It yes. sort of stops it being this entirely sappy, soppy, romantic, like, oh, look, someone's stalking her. It's like someone had a wank on that bed. That is disgusting. And you're like, oh, darkness. I like that. Mm-hmm. But then we get a montage, which is one of the least exciting montages I've ever seen. because so it's, it's a fixing home security montage. <laughs> a DIY montage. And, yeah, and but not even with any sort of visible improvement. You don't or, even get the before and after. It's or a really reach boring. around. <laughs> there is, there's one coming up, sort it of. We'll gives, gives a, he gives the driver some driving lessons. It's just rubbish. Um, but <laughs> he also, I do think there are far too many supporting characters introduced in this first 20 minutes. I think so. There's yeah. too many security people, isn't there, for us to figure out who to care or focus on. Yeah. I mean, you've got Bill, you've got Cy, you've got Tony, yeah. you've got, um, oh, what's the chauffeur called? Oh, I, have, uh, I forgot his Yeah, I can't remember. But there's, there's a lot of people who you're like, everyone has a little a little bit to yeah. say. And you're like, are these all important? No, it turns out they're not. Uh, but we also start to learn a little bit about sister Nikki, that she was a cigar and then her sister sort of stole the limelight. And it was obvious that she was the star. So we're getting a bit of background. Oh, yeah, that's when I was like, I took a gamble first time. <laughs> she's got a mini ego wall. Right, <laughs> she's the killer. Uh, Rachel's sitting by the pool listening to her own music. And she's writing lyrics, though, isn't she? She's sort of improving the song. She's not just enjoying her own music. What? Improving the song? Yeah, I it's don't think song. it's finished, though. Okay. I think she's still working on it. I want to give... Sounded pretty with... finished to me. <laughs> uh, but she's watching Frank bond with her son at the same time. And she sort of leans... And then, and then a bit later, she's watching him watch one of her videos. Yeah, why is that shot like she's... he's having a wank? Oh, my God! <laughs> you see my nose! 
shorts. He shifts in his seat. Semi, did you think the same? It's just shot. Like he's, he's, he's got another. You got hold of it. They've been in the changing room together, and she's been like a bit flirty with him. And, and he's, he's been gone, like, oh, no. I do remember what that looks like actually. So just uh, take yeah. a minute. Definitely. Yeah, it does feel like she's going to go. Uh, no, Fletcher, draw the curtains. No, 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 no. Uh, Uncle Frank think, is just having a moment. I don't think she's watching him bond. I think you're, they're trying to do. They love each other. They hate each other. And he's ruining her life with brunch on a Tuesday and some ancillary noises to do with the home improvement. She's annoyed that he's talking to Fletcher. I think in that moment because she's said, "I don't want him. I don't want Fletcher to know anything about this." So. Frank Farmer talking to her son would annoy her because it's involving security in his life, maybe? I think she's seeing this this father figure appearing okay. in her life. No. Well, it's weird we never see her bond with her son. That's true. She spends no time with Fletcher in this movie. And he's really little at one point. She's like, is Fletcher called? He's like, well, he's eight and he's on the other side of the country. So maybe you could have taken him with you. Yeah. Fletcher can't swim. I've heard. Uh, someone told me he can't swim. She also says he's not a very good swimmer and then he can't swim. And there is a big difference. So which is it, Mum? Yeah, that video that Costner is watching when it looks like he's like mm, having some Kevin run time. Run to you. Run to yeah, you. Run yeah, run to you. That look, I, I actually wrote down, oh, I wonder if that video was made just for this film because it looks so yeah. cheap and rubbish. Oh, and then I watched it on YouTube. And I was like, oh no, that's the actual video. But... No, in the it's actual not. video, it's not, it is. It? it is the actual music video it's for that Oscar-winning song. The reason it's not your memory of it is because the actual video is full of clips from the Bodyguard, which they had to take out for the video Kevin's watching, so he can't actually be watching clips from the movie he's in. Because <laughs> then you've got the gag in Spaceballs. When will then be now soon? But the moment she watches Frank have the wank um, is the moment she knows he's all the man that she needs. <laughs> and... All it takes sometimes. <laughs> I found. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Once you've walked this is in... not working. She's not into me. Hang on, I know what this needs. <laughs> Once you've kicked open that door, <laughs> literally kicked open that door, it really is, it cements things. It, it all flows from there, does it? <laughs> and on that filthy note, let's take a break. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Flo Lloyd-Hughes. I'm Rachel O'Sullivan. And I'm Chloe Morgan. Join us every week on our brand new show, Upfront on Football Ramble Presents. We'll get stuck into the biggest stories in women's football every Tuesday from the latest in the WSL. Gareth Taylor said, oh, well, actually, we were playing 3-4-3 and we moved to 4-3-3. If you look at any of the footage, if you look at the way the players played in that first half, there were four players playing at the back. That sort of comment speaks of a manager who doesn't quite know what they're doing. To how the Lionesses are shaping up ahead of a home Euros next summer. For me, I would pick Lee Williamson. I would just go for it now. For a younger age captain, you've got some big tournaments coming up. I think a lot of players think she's got a really great mentality, gets on with a lot of people. For me, she's a born leader, and I think she will be England captain at some point. And what it's really like being a player in women's football today. From my own experiences of, of being in a situation like that, I mean, you know, when we got promoted uh, when I was with Spurs, that was phenomenal. I was, you know, first choice keeper. You know, then you go into the WSL for our first season and all I wanted to do was get WSL experience. Join us every Tuesday for Upfront. Search Football Ramble Presents in your podcast app. Subscribe now. Football Ramble Presents is a stack production. Sorry. <laughs> I will say the show has become a little bluer since you've been away. It's so weird. It's just we're like vying for daddy's attention. It's pathetic. Also, I don't know if we're before or after the break now because you didn't you didn't stop speaking. Uh, we're back. Okay, this section is called So Emotional. Because Rachel heads to the club. Uh, he gives her a crossfitted with a radio transmitter. Yeah, that's weird. This is a strange thing that I have questions about at the very end of this film. Uh, but for the moment, uh, Rachel finds out about the letters she's been receiving and that have been kept from her and she gets very emotional. Uh, she says, and excuse my language, no fucking freak is going to drive me off stage. And she gets on stage to do the worst song in this film, Queen of the Night. Bullshit. One of the best songs. <laughs> oh, it's dreadful. It's amazing. Uh, it's the only song that Whitney co-wrote. And she shouldn't have. Um, I just couldn't get past the outfit. It's something else. It's good, isn't it? But they do set that up, don't they? Because when he's walking through the house, you can see the Metropolis robot and yeah, it's very Metropolis. Yeah, they're rehearsing that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so she's kind of letting people on stage while she's performing. Frank's trying to stop them. Rachel won't let him do his job. She ends up crowd surfing and it all gets a bit sketchy and Frank sprays all her fans with foam. <laughs> starts assaulting them. Foam party! <laughs> and uh, carries her away and tucks her in a bed filled with creepy dolls. Yeah, that's weird that she sleeps with dolls. But really? It's the weird bit is the fact he tucks her in like yes. a father. He like, I'm going to go to bed now. Yeah, but this, this is what I meant Someone had a before. tough day. This is when the film starts for me because before, this is what I was nearly going to message you be like, I think I've made a bit of a mistake because this isn't fun rubbish. It's just rubbish. But then... You, it's such. A, it's why it's the pastor actually. The bit where, even though it's not Whitney in the pastor, when he picks her up, her face, she goes, "Oh," because she gets it. Then he's like, "He's like, oh, he's picked me up and he's rescued me." And then you're into the film properly. And because you've seen an actual star perform, it doesn't matter about any of the rest. And I'd quite like to have Kevin Costner carry me like sure. that. Is it not Whitney in the poster? Is that a famous? No, it's, it's nice. been a bit. It's caused some controversy that because in the poster you remember it's the, she's got the space queen outfit yep. thing on, but her head is in his shoulder. Yep. So apparently they'd finished filming. Whitney's gone home. She didn't want to come back to do <laughs> to do that pickup or whatever. So they just used the body double. Oh. And apparently they tried to do some early nineties kind of photoshopping of her face, but it looked weird. So Kevin just said, "Let's just use the one we've got. It's fine." But the studio really wanted her face on it, obviously, because yeah. it was Whitney Houston. Or did but... they? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I have questions about that. 
I, this was quite a brave film at the time to have the interracial love story. And I wonder if they were hedging their bets by not showing it on the poster. Oh, I see. And because it's all in blue and... Mm, because yeah. it's a weird thing to not show her face. Yeah, it is. When she's as big a selling point as he is for this movie. I yeah. mean, it's a great image, but... It is a great image. You know, they, they, I'm sure they could have found a way to photograph her or get her on that poster. And I wonder if that was them, I don't know, just bottling it a little bit before, mm. you know, going for it. But mm. I know. then Frank fights uh, Tony in the kitchen. Well, this is great because you've just seen Frank being really tender and tucking her in. And you're like, yeah, but just because I'm tender doesn't mean I can't kick some fucking ass, Tony. <laughs> yeah, Come at me with that knife. This escalated fast. It really does, doesn't it? <laughs> It, I, I don't think it plays all that realistically, but it feels like, again, it's playing to the, the Costner ego, the yeah. masculinity. We've got I to have a moment where I beat up someone much bigger than me. Yes. And also the fact that he says the payoff at the end is great, where Tony's holding the knife and he's like, and he just turns his back on him and goes, I never want to talk about this again. And Tony's <laughs> like, yeah, all right, then. I'll go. Next section, I want to dance with somebody. So while jogging, uh, Rachel moans to Frank that she can't go for a date without him, so she should he should take her out. So is this date just out of convenience? Uh, yeah, no. so it feels a bit like he... Well, he can't say no, can he? And also, it's not like the film leaves that thread hanging, like Nicky says later, you know, you never said no to the boss. I don't. You can't say no because she's paying his wages. But then they do do a good job. It, it's funny, there's no chemistry at all between them and then the, then there weirdly is, it's like up and down a bit and I think in the date there is a little bit so it kind of gets you over that hurdle. I think at I think. this point he is kind of into her. I think he goes on the date being uh, attracted to her. He's not just, yeah. it's not duty alone, which is why it's such a problem that he goes, I'm going to take you to a bar that I like with music I like and drink beer I like and then make no effort whatsoever. <laughs> so so if- just take it to see your Jimbo. <laughs> you forgot that. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. What an awful date for her. <laughs> I'm going to take you to see a samurai movie and to a country and western bar because <laughs> your music is so clearly like country and western. I just think if you get to pick the movie and the place, yeah, then you have to make some effort in the chat. You can't have the movie, the place, and then just sit there in silence while someone goes, so... Tell me about yourself. Anything? And, then, and then you make a joke about your one true love dying on your watch. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so he's the strong, silent type. Is that attractive? Because that's something Alex and I can't understand because we can never shut up. Uh, that's why we've got a podcast. Um, because in my opinion, those blokes seem mysterious, but they're normally just stupid or boring. Of course they are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've said it before. I'll say it again. There's nothing. I like a broken man. I do. But the strong silent type is fine in the in the bar weirdly because he does make a joke but when they go home he barely he says nothing like she says can I pick up this sword or can I put this record or something he just goes yeah and it's like at that point you're like I don't think you're into me I'm, I'm probably going to go uh, it, it's fine it's attractive in a film obviously not in real life it, it makes that scene a big problem because yeah. when he takes her to his Fritzel dungeon yes. <laughs> his sound <laughs> his soundproofed Fritzel dungeon and shows her his collection of knives and swords mm. and she says I never feel safer than when I'm with you and you're like in this dungeon with his <laughs> yeah. knife collection when he said literally nothing about himself to you. I don't think safe is the word. Run. Yeah. I think as well from a rom... I know it's not a rom-com, but from a romance perspective, considering the professional risk to him if he sleeps with her, considering her risk to her life if she sleeps with him, which she doesn't seem to be aware of, but obviously he can't protect her if he's having sex with her. 
they they sleep together and it doesn't feel like the release of tension that it's supposed to feel like. They're supposed to have this love-hate thing. They, you know, they're actually better when they're fighting. Like later on when they're fighting, then they've got more chemistry than when they're not fighting. But you're supposed to see them, they've slept together and you're like, oh, that's a release. Like, oh my God, thank God we've done something with that tension. And it doesn't feel like that. It just, it doesn't feel sordid, but it does feel like it wasn't quite worth the risk kind it, of thing. It feels like heaven only gets turned on when she puts a samurai sword in his face. That's Which what it feels like. Is a thing. This whole thing makes him seem like a real weirdo. And also, there's your opportunity for you not reach around, reach around, and it's there, but it's not. He should teach her to use it, obviously, but he doesn't. He just takes it off her and mm. then sleeps with her. It's just weird. She's holding a big phallic sword in yeah. his face, and, and she he pushes goes, it at him. He's like, "No, now I'm ready to go, baby." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's a lot of issues men in the secret service have. <laughs> if I we body- shower together, and things sometimes. Why are you so weirded out by showering? Publicly, because the question is, why are you not? Because it's it's not there's nothing to be frightened of. Do you mean showering? <laughs> We've all got bodies. Do you mean showering communally or showering publicly? Because I feel they're two different things. One sounds like you've got your shower in your garden, and you're like da da da. Wherever the water is, man. <laughs> um, if I had a bodyguard, I'd definitely sleep with them. Yeah, definitely. You do, you have to. Yeah, of course you do. You what? have to to you're, you're raise the odds of them. You know putting their life on the line for you once they've had the magic well you better sleep with them and be very good in bed of course (laughs) obs is there any other kind Um, in terms of his performance though I think here's a good point to to quote Kevin Costner he said that he wanted to give her every scene to not compete with her his character wants to disappear into the background which might be good for his character it's not good for the movie that was what I would say to that yeah but I guess it worked. I also, I like the fact that they dance to I Will Always Love You and she says she doesn't understand the lyrics. And, and finds she it, kind it of depressing. off quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really neat because that is a setup that will, that does pay off to the tune of $400 million potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, next section. Didn't we almost have it all? Uh, they wake up the next day and uh, Frank's confused about what job he's doing. He can't get involved with a, a client. He breaks up with her within hours. <laughs> um... Uh, on the same morning, she received her Academy Award nomination. And uh, around this time, she heads to Miami for a gig um, where she sings, I Have Nothing. Um, interestingly, Kazdan wrote the titles of all the songs he wanted in the film in 1975. And I Have Nothing was one of them. So David Foster just wrote the song around that, which I think is brilliant because it's the second best song in the movie, I would say. I thought that if you were working on The Bodyguard and you had a day off, but you had a partner called Rachel and you wanted to propose to her and you knew the movie was going to set the word Rachel in fireworks on top of a Miami hotel, that would be the time to walk down the promenade in Miami and get down on one knee just as they set that off and pretend it was for her and nothing to do with the movie you were working on. Alex, you don't have to read out all your notes. (laughs) (laughs) You don't think that would be self-edit I guess that would be nice, yeah. Until she's like, why is everyone shouting cut? And (laughs) Can we go again? And (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) Let's talk about you're needed on set. Where are you? (laughs) Let's talk about Greg Portman. Yes, please. Um, Our assassin who shows up at the after party. We don't know he's an assassin at this point. Does he know he's an assassin at this point? (laughs) Well, the fact that he reveals himself to Frank immediately suggests that he's not very good at his job. Right, but is he? Has he been hired at this point? Because he's he's the one who set the bomb off, yes. right? Yes, he yeah. has so been he, hired. Right. So, what his motive for sleeping her with, <laughs> if he's trying to kill her? It makes no friggin' sense. There's just no explanation for any of it. No. 
it, it's very patchy, this whole thing. We find out that, you know, that Nicky hides some, him through some bloke called Armand or something yeah. in a bar. But he it, doesn't just know. so wishy-washy. He doesn't know who hired him No, as well. and she doesn't know who he is. So it's just so wishy-washy. Um, as, as a way of sort of making the plot run longer, but him trying to sort of assault her when he when she won't have sex with him, it's just bizarre and it doesn't make any sense. Um, so he gets rough with Rachel and gets kicked out of the party. Uh, that annoys Frank, who beats up some bloke for having a smoke. We're not sure who he is. <laughs> yeah, he also is very rude to that poor woman who comes over to him and goes, "I've been looking at you uh, across the room oh, yeah. all night," and he just goes, "Well, why don't you go back over there?" And keep looking if you want from a hey, distance. Mate, sometimes you just don't want it. <laughs> just, say, just say no. Take say, a break. Sorry, I'm working. <laughs> but later, yeah. maybe. Mm. Uh, Let so, me see how things are going with Whitney. <laughs> so we get our second refusal of the call. As Frank is done, he wants out. He's over. He's, he's had enough. Um, but uh, then a new phone call has spooked her, and she's willing to do anything. Uh, to stay alive and work with Frank. No more concerts, no more entourage. They're heading to Frank's family cabin in the woods. He's conveniently got a six-bedroom cabin in the woods. Run by another Frank. Frank from Cliffhanger. How is it? How is it? That's his dad. (laughs) Um, We learn that uh, Frank was at his mother's funeral the day Reagan was shot. And he can't forgive himself. How dare he not be there at his mum's funeral? That that doesn't... Oh, come on to it later, but none of that works. Yeah, well, this is his supposed trauma. Yeah. But it's like, it's not his fault because he's always right. This character is is never wrong in this movie and therefore that's their get out of jail with this Reagan thing because he can't be wrong that day. The idea that, oh, if he'd been there, he would have saved him. It's just, there's nothing really there to be guilty for. Yeah. Also, Reagan didn't die. And he didn't die. Yeah. And he was at his mum's funeral. It's mm. not like he just had a cheeky day off. It's nothing. It's, it's just like it's freaking Clint pissed the night before. Exactly. Uh, so Frank clocks some footprints leading to the boathouse. He smashes Fletcher into the water to save him from an exploding boat. <laughs> he didn't know the boat was going to explode at that point. No. You can't you can't rewrite history. He, he goes, he can't swim. This is how I'll save him. <laughs> also, why was the bomb on a boat? She hadn't gotten in and probably wasn't going to get in. Again, Portman is fucking shit. Because <laughs> um, that's the thing. You're Portman. You're like, right, I've got this bomb. I can see they're all in this house. So what I'll do with it is put it in this bowl. In this yeah. tree. <laughs> hope they walk past this tree. It's a tree bomb. He's terrible at his job. Yeah, uh, Nikki starts drinking uh, and she confesses because uh, Fletcher's now in danger. Uh, she says she hates her sister. Uh, the stuff we have about the assassin here that I just said. But uh, yeah, the truly terrible assassin then shoots Nicky. Uh, so why did... I mean, I know he didn't know who'd hired him. Exactly. So I think he... he... Oh, I thought it was mistaken identity. So that's what yeah. I'm asking. Yes, I think that's what it is because okay. he's shite at his job. And it's dark. Uh, <laughs> I'll have anyone fuck it. But Frank's equally bad because he gets away. If Frank was good at his job, he would catch him here. Yeah. Um, and the authorities think they've caught their guy because they found some guy with pictures of Rachel in his locker. But he is the guy who has been writing the letters yes. saying you're going to die yes you have everything I have nothing yes okay so he's a bit of a weirdo as well oh yeah he's not off scot-free but I, I don't he think he's capable have. of doing the things but he may have masturbated on her bed but that's to me I mean you're supposed to think that but it, it takes oh no because I suppose they had no security so someone to break into her house takes some cunning 
and by the end of it, you're meant to think he's just this feeble sort of weirdo. Mm. Mm. So but he's you, actually yeah, quite dangerous. You actually yeah. feel they. I think they play a sympathy card yeah, by having too. him pop up at the end by yeah. going, "Oh, at least mm. he's all right because he's not a real killer." And if he yeah. did the bed wank, he was very. He's actually very, very, <laughs> very dangerous. Genuinely, yeah. um, <laughs> so. Uh, uh, Everybody's afraid of something. That's how we know we care about things. When we're afraid, we'll lose them. That means nothing. So he's a philosophizing bodyguard, a bit like our bouncers in Roadhouse and toughest man in the world. Um, but like them, everything he says means sod all, I would say. Yep, I agree. Agreed. I mean, I don't sort of, I just stay away from bouncers. They scare me. <laughs> <laughs> One moment in time is the next section because uh, Frank reckons that they'll attack uh, at the Oscars, which she can't miss, as this is her big moment in time. She recovers pretty quickly from her sister's death, yeah. I have to say. Well, she does. it's an Academy Award, Alex. Oh, you're right, actually. Um, you do host them. No, uh, they are a big deal. Sky. Uh, are you as good a host? <laughs> Sky. Are you as good a host as Robert Wool uh, well, up there making weirdly sexist comments? Unbelievable. Can you believe that? The no. bit where... They could have probably cast anyone in that role. Mm. Just get a comedian to come and do a couple of days yeah. and and write some actual funny material. But like, it's just bizarre. He's, he's playing himself, isn't he? Yeah. I, he is playing himself because he goes, fucking actors at one point. But... He would never get that gig. No, of course he wouldn't get that gig. But So it's a, it's a, a, a woman wins the award for best sound and yep. his lines are ever see a woman like that working in sound if she's working in sound who's listening maybe she's the boom girl the badder boom girl get him off stage <laughs> <laughs> so Rachel's presenting an award um, and she ends up running off stage in a panic so that Debbie Reynolds can get a cameo where she says I always said she was nuts <laughs> really weird again a really weird cameo yeah. of all the people in the world Debbie Reynolds <laughs> uh, at which point Spandau Ballet moans this guy knows nothing about show business I just like everything Cy says in this film <laughs> it's all so stupid um, and then we see the gun camera aka the gun mirror um, it's so obvious, isn't it? It's so obvious him standing there with yeah. it. I mean, I, my, why does my camera have a laser sight? Do, do they not all have laser sights? <laughs> I think it's a shame. I know I'm comparing it to Inline of Fire, but you don't get to see how he got it in through security. They're like, we've got security. This is what I said at the start. You do not spend enough time understanding this killer or his motives, which is a real problem for a movie where you're like, I wonder who he is, what he's going to do, how yeah. it's going to happen. He stabs poor Tony in the eye. Oh, that's horrible. Horrible. Yeah. So fast uh, and so brutal. Uh, Rachel wins and then the movie goes into slow motion. Uh, Frank takes a bullet, then shoots Portman and his <laughs> camera, which explodes in Portman's face for some reason. <laughs> his head had exploded. Yeah, it's his head. I've watched it a few times and I still can't figure out. It's, it's, it's the camera glass. I, I don't it's know. awesome anyway. Mm, that's uh, a good bit. Uh, Alex. Mm. We've just established that you are the host of Sky's Oscar coverage in the UK. Mm -hmm. What would you do if this happened and then the producers threw back to you in the studio? <laughs> uh, pretty much what I did when they opened the wrong envelope. <laughs> oh, they're, oh, very, wow. they're very comparable, <laughs> which is the biggest moment Oscars, Oscars moment ever. I just sort of sat there and went, well, you went quiet. I just looked at the screen. What are they paying you for, dude? Intentionally. Do? I was pulling a oh, face. Okay. Like, oh, I see. Like, and you I couldn't was, think of anything to say. No, I was over-egging it. I had people in my ear going, um, we might need to come back to the studio. It could be a terrorist attack. Shut <laughs> that's, up. What, that's what people really? were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> On the, the gallery, it was like, this could be terrorism. I'm like, what, swap, oh, terrorist I would, swapping envelopes? It caused mayhem. Just before they realised what was going on, there yeah. was just confusion uh -huh. in the gallery because we have oh, a link to the gallery from London to the gallery in LA. Mm -hmm. And you could hear the gallery in LA 
when they read out oh, La La Land. Freaking out. People freaking out, but no one was communicating with the international galleries what the fuck was going on. Right. So it was just a lot of people in the gallery and they all going, shit, shit, oh shit, uh, cut to, uh, fuck, fuck, fuck. And so obviously our gallery's like, something big is happening. It could be terrorism. I <laughs> wish you had just taken your earpiece out and run off. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, you thought it might be terrorism and you pulled a funny face. The <laughs> <laughs> door. Oh, this sounds bad. <laughs> is that better or worse than the weird thing Cy does now, which is smear blood all over the Oscar winning card? It's so fucking weird. <laughs> and that's do the it? end of the whole sequence. I think he might be the bed wanker because that was <laughs> that is uncalled for. So is that not? I find it quite amusing that all hell has broken loose and his thing is to pick up that card which has her Oscar win on. Is that not him basically as an irredeemable product of the entertainment industry and the fact that mm. someone's yeah. been shot? Yeah. But he still cares that his client yep. has won the Oscar moment, yeah. and he wants to keep that and perhaps sell it for money in the future because he's got blood on it, which might be worth <laughs> something. So I think I thought that was a really good moment for his character. Yeah, OK. And then we're into the final section, which is called I Will Always Love You, for obvious reasons. So we're at the airport. Um, they have their Casablanca moment. Um, there's a kiss on the cheek. There's a single tear. And then... <laughs> and then Yes. Where is she going? Uh, Why is he there? It doesn't matter. <laughs> so we haven't talked about the song. Oh. We haven't talked about the song. So uh, what becomes of the broken hide was the big number they were going to go with. What? But Paul Young scuppered their chances. I hate that song. Um, because uh, the, 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 the soundtrack producer was reading Billboard and saw that Paul Young had covered What Becomes of the Broken Heart for the film Fried Green Tomatoes at the oh. Whistle Stop Cafe and it was becoming a hit. Brilliant. And so it was back to the drawing board. Uh, producer Jim Wilson suggested a bunch of songs, including uh, Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You. Costner, who's a country music guy, as we established earlier with the movie, um, he loved that song um, and he felt that his, Whitney could elevate it. He suggested she do the first part a cappella. David Foster said, no way, that's a terrible idea. Uh, the agreement they came to was that she'd do a cappella for the movie version, but on Foster's album version, it would have full orchestra. Uh, the record company didn't want it. They said it was too slow for radio, but Costner kept persisting. And the rest is history. The a cappella version is the one that ended up on the album, is the one that got released. And yeah, it's one of the best selling songs of all time. Beautiful. What was he thinking with Waterworld? <laughs> he's, he has, How can he get it so He's right? got good instincts. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Whitney says, wait uh, to the pilot and she runs off the plane. Uh, the camera spins round them on a dolly as they're passionately kissing to the song. Uh, fun fact, the cameraman fell off that dolly while it was spinning round them, uh, got up, chased the camera round, got back on and that's the shot they ended up using. <laughs> I'd love to see the, the behind the scenes of that. <laughs> Stop! Now, on this documentary I watched, which must be from about 10 years ago, the, the filmmakers say that in the original draft, they didn't get together, but this film leaves it open-ended. Now, I feel like it doesn't leave it open-ended. No, they kiss, they love each other, but the song is telling us they're going to go their separate ways. Yes. That's what the song's about. And so yeah. I think it's a, I mean, it's a great ending, but it's not open-ended. No. So, uh, yeah, their worlds don't mix. Uh, she leaves and we cut to her performing and, and boom, watching her perform this. Mm. After that kiss, uh, the movie's making 
all that money. And then Frank is now on some kind of religious detail. He's, he's back to work looking after a priest. Looming. He's looming in the shadows. Yeah, and I'm going to end on a question because is the priest holding one of his crosses that he gave to yes, Rachel? I think yeah. so. So did he ask for it back from Rachel or does he have multiple crosses that he gives to people? A big bag of crosses. And what if they all press them at the same time? Where does he go? I just think if you think if you think that through it doesn't work. And then again to go back to like his understated performance I have no idea what his expression no. is meant to be at the end. I don't know whether he's like, I made the wrong decision. I made the right decision. I'm loving this job. I'm hating this job. What's going on with my hair? I've no idea what he's thinking. It's just blank. It is write your own ending onto Kevin's face. Um, and so uh, the film got bad reviews. It's got 34% on Rotten Tomatoes. It opened third behind the two films I mentioned, Aladdin and Home Alone 2. But that word of mouth and soundtrack propelled it. It's the best-selling movie soundtrack of all time. It sold 45 million copies. There was uh, a point when it was selling million copies a week, as David Foster says in this documentary. Cha-ching. Um, <laughs> he's, quite, he's quite funny because I think he feels like he got quite lucky here, especially as he was disagreeing with Costner about I will always love yeah. you. Um, in October 1993, a 20-year-old woman from Middlesbrough was sentenced to seven days in jail after she played I will always love you so loudly and so often that her neighbours complained of psychological torture and the police charged her with noise pollution. <laughs> uh, we got a 2012 musical of The Bodyguard. Uh, Beverly Knight and Alexandra Burke have both starred in it. It's now played all over the world. Mm. And we nearly got Bodyguard 2, thanks to Sarah Ferguson. Yep. So Kevin Costner said, uh, Sarah was really important. I always respect Sarah because she's the one that set up the conversation between me and Princess Diana. She was just so supportive of the idea. So the plot would have involved Frank uh, protecting Diana from stalkers and paparazzi before their relationship turned romantic. He said a first script for the project arrive on, arrived on his desk the day before Diana was killed. And was Diana going to star in it? Yes. Right. That is a, not a good idea. Uh, it's not though, is it? I mean, I think it would be. I think people, I mean, it would have made billions. <laughs> yes, it would. Yeah, I mean, they were talking about even the love scenes. He said, I just remember her being incredibly sweet on the phone and she asked the question, <laughs> are we going to have like a kissing scene? She said in a very respectful way. She was a little nervous because her life was very governed. And I said, yeah, there's going to be a little bit of that, but we can make that okay too. <laughs> okay. No. Weird. Yeah. Right, uh, <laughs> no. So that's The Bodyguard. I just watched Spencer. It's very good. I've heard it's really good. Very yeah. good. Should we do the questions? The bits. Are you changing it to the questions I just now? Did, just wait for <laughs> Fine. All right, let's do the questions. What are your questions, Chris? Uh, what's your favourite scene, Vicky? It's when Whitney sings Queen of the Night and then she crowd surfs and then he picks her up because that's it's when it all comes together. It's when it stops being really shit and becomes really good. Alex? Uh, it's him taking a bullet for her because it's sort of like being this slow build and it's just a release. You're like, finally, he's taken the bullet for her. But mainly because um, of Tony, what's it, Portman's camera gun because it's just like, it looks like a prop from Red Dwarf. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah, it does a bit. Uh, for me, it's Whitney singing I Will Always Love You. 
most valuable whatever, Alex. Gary Kemp as Cy Spectre. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Excellent. Absolutely fantastic. High five. Yeah. High five. I love Are him. Are you joking? <laughs> no, I love it. I love that he's picked him. Uh, I, I haven't. Oh, I thought that's what you meant. <laughs> I, again, but it was the bit that I, I actually mentioned earlier where he picks up the card from the Oscar win and he white, smears the blood and he's like puts it in his inside jacket. He's like, my client won the best Oscar. <laughs> I suppose you do want him on your team. And that's, you? that is exactly who that kind of person is. Right. I think he's a fairly accurate representation of, a PR of the lot of people who work in that industry. <laughs> mm. okay. Not all of them, and not the ones I know and I was work just going to say, the ones we know You're are fired. fantastic. <laughs> but some. Uh, okay. Vicky. Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. She's a star, and it needs it. Because okay. Kevin's performance is... I mean, it just it only works now because it works. You think it does, kind of thing. Mm. I can't imagine what you thought watching it first time round. But um, yeah, you need a, I, a big I, star. <laughs> I, I, it's Kevin Costner, so I was just like, I assume he knows what he's doing. Yeah, and this is all meant to be the way it is, as opposed <laughs> to just bad. So, but I don't. I just, Whitney is really good in some scenes. Yeah. Really good. But there are scenes in this where she's really not good as it's well. It's true. So it when they break goes up. goes from up to down, like from scene to scene, she yeah. can be absolutely amazing. You're like, fucking hell. Yeah, especially as their first thing. Mm. Like, But then there are others where you're like, I'm not sure what you're meant to be telling me here. When they break up with each other, I think she's bad. And then, but then when she's, it seems, I think I'm projecting, but when she seems like she's more just herself. So when they're in the limo and they're going to the Oscars and she's like, I'm sick of thinking about this. What you know? What's the worst that could happen? And then she says, "Oh, I might lose the fucking award." And then giggles, and you think, "Oh, that's that was brilliant." Like, but you think that's just her. Yeah, but there's a bit on the carpet where they go, "Oh, do you think you're going to win the award?" And she's like, "Make make me the queen tonight, or something." I want to be the queen of the night. So yeah, you would never have someone on the Oscars red carpet. Have you ever heard a star when they're interviewed by the press and go, "Would you like to win the award?" Like, go, yes. "Hell yes, give me the award." They're like, "Oh, it's such a great such category." An honor. It's just yeah, great but, to be but here. no, but I think that fits in with her character all the way through this film she doesn't take bullshit from anyone she stands up to frank and she says what she thinks that's why that's what he finds appealing about her mm-hmm. uh my most valuable whatever is uh the writer of i will always love you uh dolly parton <laughs> yeah. do you know the story behind this song no there's, there's two funny things i want to say because i think it's awesome so it's not uh it's a love song but it's not about a romantic relationship she was working on this tv show for years with a guy then she wanted to leave the show he got upset with her wanting to part ways and she went home and wrote that song for him oh that's nice um but the more interesting aspect of it is it reached number one on the country charts and Elvis Presley got interested. Uh, he wanted to record it and he would have done an amazing version of it. But Colonel Tom Parker, his manager, was an arsehole. Mm. Uh, and he um, told her that it was standard procedure for songwriters to sign over half of the publishing rights to any song that Elvis sung. Right. Uh, which was a deal he did many times and, you know, it screwed a lot of people out of a lot of money. But... You want your song sung by Elvis. And so uh, Parton's brilliant talking about this. She says, um, she, she recalls, uh, I said, I'm really sorry. And I cried all night. I mean, it was like the worst thing. You know, it's like, oh, my God, Elvis Presley. And other people were saying, you're nuts because she turned it down. It's Elvis Presley. I said, I can't do that. Something in my heart says, don't do that. And I just didn't do it. He would have killed it. But anyway, he didn't. Then when Whitney Houston's version came out, I made enough money to buy Graceland. (laughs) (laughs) I love that woman. Uh, If you could change anything, what would you change, Vicky? So I can't believe I'm going to advocate for fridging, but Frank Farmer's broken heart, which which Rachel Maron senses and is going to heal, 
um, is because he's afraid of not being, I'm afraid of not being there for Ronald Reagan. (laughs) That isn't sexy. Because you said before, Ronald Reagan didn't die and also no one cares about, you know, it's just, especially because we're talking about in the line of fire and the sort of cult of personality around JFK and the fact that he died. Ronald Reagan getting shot just doesn't have the same mystique. And I don't think it. you need, you've got this traumatized man which is a trope. And so he's going to be healed through love and sex and all the rest of it. So his trauma being as a result of Ronald Reagan is not fit. So you can't do that. So it needs to either be, which I get again, the fridging thing. He did get a girl killed and she's just this dead girl <laughs> that gives him personality, which I know is really awful. Um, or it's something to do with his mum. Like mum grief isn't sexy either, but it's sexier than Ronald Reagan. So mm. it's, it's in there. It just made me think they could have cast Jodie Foster as Rachel, couldn't they? Because that guy that shot Reagan was doing it for Jodie Foster. Yeah. That would have been a weird can circular she thing. Sing? Yeah. Can she? She's singing. She can do anything. Uh, That's true. No. Alex. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, we've covered this. Explain to me who the villain is and why the villain is <laughs> on any level whatsoever. Uh, some chemistry between the leads would be useful. Uh, probably don't have your leading actress in her debut movie play a character who is a singer winning an Oscar for her performance in her debut movie. Yeah. I think it's... A little bit like people would be going, oh, so they think it's sort of a, there's an arrogance to it. Like, oh, this is Whitney's debut movie and she's winning an award as her character for her debut movie. So maybe, yeah, maybe the stars will align and she'll win an award, win the best actress Oscar for this. I think it's a little bit, it can be read as that. But my main point, and I'm sticking with this, mm. kill Kevin. Kevin should die at the end. Mm. When he gets shot, screw your sequel, Kevin needs to die. Imagine the end of this movie. If she is singing, I will always love you. Proper star is born levels of tears over those credits because he's done his job. He's done what he wanted to do. He has ticked his box. He's not leaving in tragedy. He's leaving as a success because that's what he wanted to do. And she was protected by him. So he has done exactly that. I just think I would have been, I couldn't believe he didn't die. Mm. I was literally watching it going, you're fucking kidding. It's Mario Van Peebles turning up at the end of Jaws 4 in a wheelchair at the airport. Levels of ridiculous after he's been eaten by a shark. He's there and it's like, and then they don't even get together or anything. Then you're left with looming Kevin behind a priest. And you're like, this is kill it. It's the payoff, isn't it? That she didn't understand the song and now she does understand it. She can sing it. It's about letting some, setting someone free rather than someone being dead. I prefer. <laughs> it's the meaning of the song. I, listen, I've half listened to the song. I okay. will always love Bullshit, you. Bullshit, by the way. I mean, I've never. I don't really. It was on a couple lyrics. of times that year. I don't know if you if you heard it at I, all. I don't take in what songs mean. I just jump around to them if they've got a catchy riff, and this doesn't. So I really didn't take it in. You don't need right. to pretend. Anyway, the point is. That song to me works for someone dead as well. I will always love you even though you're dead. So Kevin should die. And then he could have done Candle in the Wind in the sequel. Oh, amazing. Um, Or really horrific. My change, uh, it seems obvious to me, we've set him up as a knife thrower. He kills him at the end by throwing the knife. (laughs) Why have that at the beginning and not use it at the end? Of course, of course. They they lost so much in the drafts. (laughs) We set this up. Or an Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he just reached over and hurled an Oscar through Portman's eye. (laughs) Interestingly, on that documentary on uh, the DVD, Costner says that he, he thinks they got the ending wrong. 
Uh, and and he should have died. No, no, not oh. not at all. Of course not. It's uh, Kevin. Nice, Kevin. Um, and it, I, I can't die. So. And he said he even tried to even tried to change it just before they started shooting, but it just messed too much up. Uh, but he believed that the finale, that the Oscar stuff should have all happened similar to the way it happens. But then the actual climax should have happened away from the Oscars where they could have been in close vicinity with each other so Rachel gets separated from Frank she doesn't want him anywhere near her she goes she gets in her limousine and the chauffeur as Frank predicted earlier has been murdered (gasps) by Portman Portman's driving the car Portman drives away there's a car chase and then he says just you know um uh, uh, it's it's much more sinister, and then uh, Frank does something very direct and very exciting to save her. But the confrontation takes place with them all together away from the Oscars. And I, I what I knew that when I was watching it this time, and I think it would have worked better. Yeah. It's, it's it sort of lacks something that yeah. shot a big action sequence yeah. would be nice. Yeah, a car chase would have really ticked a lot of boxes for me. Yeah, and that's it. Lovely, excellent. Um, you were away last week. There was no quiz. Have you uh, dropped <clears> it as a feature, or are we sticking with it? Up to you. It's called the questions. <laughs> I have six <laughs> questions and a bonus. All right. It's called Music Acts this week. Okay. So I'm going to give you... <laughs> Just try and enjoy no, it. No, I'm going to look at you, Alex, because you're more into this. Um, I'm going to give you sort of a description of the character or the film, and you've got to tell me which music star acted in it. Okay. So I would have said who played Rachel Maron and you'd say Whitney Houston. Okay. So who played a rapper called Rabbit in 2002? Uh, uh, Eminem. Marshall Mathers. Oh, fuck. I knew that. Bollocks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Correct. Uh, Which crooner played a serial killer in the dumb 1995 movie? Harry Connick Jr. Correct. (laughs) Who played Big Budget Battleship in 2012? Oh, Rihanna. Mm. Correct. It was Rihanna. Who did something terrible at the start of The Sixth Sense? Oh, Donnie Wahlberg. Correct. You kids on the block. NKOTB. Oh, yeah. Which rock star was eating flies in a movie in 1992? Meatloaf. No. We've done the film. It's a gothic horror called... Oh, uh... Dracula. You know, I know who played Renfield in Dracula. Oh, Tom Waits. Correct. Oh, Tom <laughs> friggin' Waits. And the final one, uh, in 1985, look at me now, Vicky. Okay. In 1985. Mick Jacker and David Bowie, Free Jack. Who was the titular Susan? Madonna. Correct. 4-2. Oh. Well played, Alex. <laughs> How you feeling? Horrible. <laughs> I thought I've, I, I hedged my bets on Free Jack at the end there. I thought he was going to get me for Free Jack. Yeah. Did you know the Madonna one? Uh, Just I, say no because it made me feel better. <coughs> Desperately Seeking Susan? Yeah. Yeah. You I, didn't. I no. would have done. Yeah. Nah. Okay. It's no. over. <laughs> <laughs> it's over. Uh, right then. Uh, let's look ahead to next week. It is my choices next week. Uh, so here is your clue for the pairing next week. Uh, repeat after me, guys. You're involved in this clue. Dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. Now you. Dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. <laughs> That's the clue. <laughs> yeah, now she gets it. Vicky yeah. took way too long to understand what was happening there. I'm sorry. I think this says a lot about the three of us. Oh, I love that clue. 
I love that clue. Uh, so that is your clue for next week. Repeat after me, Vicky. Dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. Good work, good work. Uh, but before then, we're back on Thursday talking 1993's In the Line of Fire. Don't forget, you can get tickets on Eventbrite for our live show at the Loading Bar here in London on November the 11th. Eventbrite.co.uk. Please type in Clash of the Titles in the search bar. All the details will come up. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate, and indeed review us if you have the time. It's a great help and check in with us on Twitter and Instagram at ClashPod. Bye-bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.